content warning, this episode contains brief mention of substance abuse, death of a child, and death by suicide. Before we jump into things, spoiler alert for the 2018 film Winchester. If you have not seen this film and don't want it spoiled, watch it now and then give this episode a listen. Welcome to Haunted Spouse, a Haunted House podcast. I'm your ghost host, Laura Casey, and this is my Haunted Spouse and co-host, Ben. Hello. Tonight on Haunted Spouse, we'll be talking about the legend of the Winchester House in San Jose, California, including the tourist attraction and the 2018 film. Ever since I first heard the story of the Winchester legend... I have been completely captivated by it. It is a quintessential Victorian haunted house story, complete with a big sprawling mansion that could be haunted, and spirits, and loss, and guilt, all of these things that we traditionally think of coming together into a haunted house narrative. And it's particularly interesting because it is at least somewhat based in fact and reality. The way that we keep seeing it pop up as an influence for the haunted house stories of the 1900s especially makes me feel like it's worth delving into and seeing what place it might hold in the genealogy of the haunted house. And just to clarify, for this episode, we're going to be focusing on the Winchester legend as told by the Winchester Mystery House attraction, as well as the film Winchester. Uh, There is also a film, The Haunting of Winchester House. From what I could tell, it is neither a good movie nor particularly relevant to the Winchester legend in general, so not going to be covering that one. And as far as the real-life story of Sarah Winchester, we plan to do a follow-up episode. In researching for this episode, we found that there's a lot more to the story than you would get just from the attraction itself. We want to take the time to read her biography and understand it a little more and come at it a second time with a little more knowledge of her real-life story and how that intersects with the legend. Sarah Lockwood Party was born in New Haven, Connecticut in 1839, and something I found kind of interesting for the time was that her husband, William Wirt Winchester, was born in 1837. They were only two years apart in age, which, given how I usually think of marriages in this time period, seems really surprisingly close in age. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. William Wirt Winchester uh, was the only son of Oliver Winchester, and as such was the heir to the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, uh, maker of the gun that won the West. Ooh. (laughs) 
The two were married in 1862. Four years later, their only child, Annie, was born. She died just five and a half weeks later from Erasmus. That's so sad. Yeah. I hate reading about stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And this is kind of where we start to see the first inklings of the legend, because a lot of this revolves around the death of of some people very close to her and how she reacts to that grief. Mm -hmm. Um, Because then 15 years later, uh, just three months after he himself had inherited the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, her husband, William, died of tuberculosis, leaving Sarah reportedly $20 million plus nearly 50% of Winchester Repeating Arms stock. Not too shabby. Yeah, that's a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good haul there. I haven't done the calculation on what twenty million would be today, but I bet it's a lot. Yep, yep. <laughs> twenty million is a lot today. <laughs> yeah, and fifty percent stock is probably yes. a lot today too. Absolutely. According to the legend, after Sarah Winchester's husband passed away, she was lost in the depths of mourning. The legend says that she met with a medium who channeled her husband and told her that she should move west. Her husband, through the medium, told her that spirits were angry with her, many spirits. In fact, anyone who had been killed by a Winchester rifle, knowing that this rifle was used in the Civil War, that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So it's said that Sarah was haunted by these spirits throughout her life. And that's what convinced her to move west, to purchase a farmhouse, and to expand it into the Winchester mansion we know today. And so, yeah, in 1885, she arrived in California and the very next year purchased a two-story farmhouse near San Jose, which she would grow into what she called Yanada Villa or Plain Village, which is awfully ironic, given what it was going to become. Mm -hmm. Anything but plain. Exactly. (laughs) A large portion of the construction on the house took place between 1890 and 1900. Over the course of that time, it grew from the small two-story farmhouse into a massive seven-story Victorian mansion. Also, as part of the legend, it's my understanding that she continued to see mediums over the course of this time. It's thought that they may have been a continuing influence in her construction plans on the house. That's right. The legend says that Sarah believed that she needed to follow the instructions of the spirits. It's unclear. Different versions of the legend say that she was either trying to keep the spirits away from her by building, and that would explain why there are so many twists and turns and nonsensical elements to the architecture, such as stairs that lead nowhere or hallways that are dead ends, that sort of thing. Another version of the legend says that she was trying to create rooms for the spirits to live in or wanted to appease the spirits. Either way, the narrative is that Sarah was afraid of these spirits and she felt that she needed to continue to build 
day in and day out, some say nonstop for decades, in order to keep herself safe. Hmm. Well, in that second version of the legend, the one about making house or making rooms for all the ghosts is kind of interesting and in seeing how that may have inspired Walt Disney's claims that the Haunted Mansion was supposed to be a retirement home of sorts for the happy haunts to come stay in. And it's kind of makes you wonder if that's where he drew that inspiration from, if it came from this legend. Yeah, it's kind of like the fun, whimsical version of the Winchester legend. It's the (laughs) Disney-ified version of the Winchester legend. Complete with singing chipmunks or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. In 1906, the Great San Francisco Earthquake damaged the mansion. The seven-story tower and most of the fourth floor were particularly damaged and later demolished. Those parts of the house were not rebuilt. So what we have today is essentially what was left over after the earthquake. It's said that when the earthquake happened, Sarah was trapped in one of the interior rooms for at least several hours while people were looking for her. But because of the size of the house and her not, some would say purposefully, not having specific rooms that she was in, it was hard to find her. One version of the legend says that she didn't like to stay in the same rooms because she was constantly on the move, (laughs) hiding from the spirits. Either way, I think that that must have been an impactful experience to be trapped there and not knowing if she was going to survive. The legend says that she interpreted this earthquake as being a result of the angry spirits and indicated that they weren't happy with her work. And so the legend goes, this is why she didn't, why she didn't repair the damage and rather walled off those rooms. Yeah. I hadn't known that part about it, that that was supposedly some of the reasoning there Mm -hmm. because she did continue to build on to the house right she just didn't repair what was destroyed that's right so i think i remember seeing that it never went back to the seven floors either yeah i as far as i'm aware i think the modern uh the modern day house is yeah still just i think just three stories i say just but (laughs) (laughs) yeah Sarah Winchester passed away on September 5th, 1992, putting an end to 36 years of construction on the house. She made no mention of the mansion in her will, and so it eventually went to auction. Uh, It had been not appraised particularly well as a result of the earthquake damage that had been done to it, and... Ultimately, it was acquired in 1923 by John and Mame Brown. Their original plan was to create a park featuring Backity-Back Railway, an early wooden roller coaster. However, due to local restrictions and the overwhelming public interest in the house, they decided to instead open the house itself as an attraction. And I'd say that was the right decision. Agreed. I think, uh, yeah, it wouldn't have quite the same weight to it if there were a wooden roller coaster behind the house. (laughs) 
Later that same year, the mansion opened for public tours with Mame Brown as the first tour guide. Starting in the 1930s, the attraction was officially being marketed as the Winchester Mystery House, and in the 1960s, the Mystery House was incorporated, and to this day, it is run and managed by Winchester Mystery House, LLC, which represents, I believe, the descendants of the Browns. And according to the Winchester Mystery House website, the house consists of 24,000 square feet, 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 160 rooms, 52 skylights, 47 stairways and fireplaces, 17 chimneys, 13 bathrooms, and six kitchens. That's not enough kitchen for that space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think that that kind of makes sense for one person, right? Yeah. Well, you know what? I guess what I don't know is if you were trying to feed all the construction workers, maybe. I don't know if they ate on site or if they brought food from home. Maybe if you were <laughs> going to cook for that many people, you might need six kitchens, I guess. There you go. Yeah. Or maybe just that many ghosts needed a kitchen. That was like their main... That's what they were looking for when they were doing their house hunting, and they came to her. <laughs> they told her that it's got to have a good kitchen. Yep. And so, but they like they had different ideas of what a good kitchen was because everyone's exactly. kind of got their own style. And they were trying to balance it with their commute because you know they wanted to be close to work, but they also needed it to be in their price range. Mm -hmm. It was. It is really challenging. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um. Welcome to our House Hunters <laughs> fan cast. <laughs> oh, it's like Ghost Hunters, but it's House Hunters. Uh -huh. I like it. Okay. So that's the information that we got from the Winchester Mystery House website about Sarah Winchester and her family. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll do an introduction to the main characters in the 2018 film which were based off of Sarah Winchester and her family. Please excuse the tiny poltergeist making noises in the background of today's recording. So first we have Sarah Winchester, who is, of course, the owner of the home. The film opens in 1906, which puts Sarah in her 60s. She is shown as a mysterious figure who is always wearing all black, Victorian morning attire, complete with a black veil that she sometimes wears over her face. And she's played by Helen Mirren. Mm -hmm. Next, we have Dr. Eric Price, who is presumably a psychologist. He has been contacted by the Winchester Repeating Arms Company to do a mental status examination on Sarah Winchester at the request of the board. They have requested this examination because they are concerned about her ability to make decisions for the company. When we're introduced to Dr. Price, it's made clear that he is haunted by his own personal demons and is a frequent user of laudanum. <laughs> and alcohol. And then we have Sarah's niece, Marion Marriott. And if you think that is a mouthful, 
Previously, her name was Marion Merriman. So. <laughs> Marion. Wait, Marion. Marion Merriman and Marion Marriott. Marion Merriam Marriott. Yes. Marion Merriam Marriott. Mar- Wait. Marion Merriman Marriott. There it is. I love it. And her son, Henry. They are fairly fresh off of the death of her husband and Henry's father and are staying with Sarah in the house. And as early as the very first scene, uh, we see that Henry has something going on with him. Uh, At the start of the film, we're not 100% sure, but we do know that he gets up out of bed and starts wandering around the house with a bag over his head, just saying spooky things. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's implied that he is possessed or under the influence of a spirit. So the film takes place over maybe a week or so. The majority takes place after Dr. Price has arrived at the house. For the most part, the hauntings occur at night, and that's especially when we notice Henry apparently being possessed or following sounds around the house. Another piece meant to cause some confusion for viewers is that Sarah Winchester requests that Dr. Price not use substances so that he can have a clear mind. So after Dr. Price sees one apparition after he stops using alcohol and laudanum, he wonders if he's hallucinating due to withdrawal rather than a spirit actually being present. That question of reality versus spirits versus hallucination is intended to continue throughout much of the story. So as far as the hauntings go, we didn't think it made sense to go through them one at a time because it was so frequently just a flash of something. Yeah. So I'll give you some examples And then you can kind of extrapolate that to kind of the whole film. (laughs) (laughs) So, for example, Dr. Price thinks he hears a woman crying through the innovative intercom system that they have created. And so he puts his ear to the hole to hear. And we see a finger extend out the hole to his ear. Another example is at night, Dr. Price sees what appears to be dead people or people with flayed skin for some reason, and then he looks again, and there's nothing there. So, very apparitions. Each night, Henry appears to be sleepwalking or possessed or something. We see his mother wake up and see him missing. This, to me, had a felt like a nod to The Turn of the Screw, where we see children acting in ways that appear to be influenced by spirits, but we don't really know what's going on from an adult perspective. Yeah, it feels like this movie really focuses on the quick flash of a ghost jump scare type hauntings. You're not really seeing this presence is here and working upon us. It's like the mirror is turning itself and now there's a ghost behind him 
and then he turns it again and it's gone and then he turns around and it's back and then he turns around again and it's gone (laughs) um yeah there was more of that than i would have liked yeah so as such you don't really get a lot of story on a lot of these haunts there's not a like oh and this ghost has this thing like eventually we get some story on the main ghost who's haunting this house but a lot of it is just we needed a scare here so we we're gonna he's peeking through this door we have to have a jump scare because he's peeking through a door in a horror movie so we're gonna have a face pop up in the doorway and give him a reason to turn and run into the next scare and to keep you on your toes and to keep you on your toes I don't know if this is just me, but I felt like it was almost too many jump scares and not enough of anything else. Yes, it leans heavily on jump scares for its horror and very little else. I'll also say I really don't like jump scares, so like (laughs) any more than one is like, yeah, that's way too many. But this one in particular, it felt like, oh, here's another jump scare. Here we go. Yeah. But they still get me every oh, time. Oh, <laughs> they absolutely get me. And and I'll admit to being bi- generally biased against jump scares just because they're not... I don't necessarily enjoy those. I know there are people who do, so I won't necessarily knock that. But I will say I have seen things like the Haunting of Hill House TV series, which executes them very well because they're not the whole thing. It uses them in ways where there is a broader story that maintains a certain level of horror and the jump scares are a complement to that whereas for most of the movie there is very little story and just these jump scares they made the story realized that there was nothing scary until maybe the very end if you could even call the end that scary Mm -hmm. and realized they needed to like dribble these in this also stands in juxtaposition to american horror story Which often does a similar thing where you do have a lot of ghosts haunting a place and they do jump scare you and the characters at times, but we still get their stories at some point. Despite American Horror Story's penchant for just not explaining things, we do usually at least get some reason why a particular ghost or something is there. In this case, it's we know they were killed by the rifle, And maybe we could intuit something from how they're dressed or things like that. But there's really nothing inherent to the way that these ghosts and ghouls are being presented that makes them unique. Also, like, what's the deal with the finger that never... Yeah. We don't know whose finger that is. Nobody's hand is that gnarly in this entire cast. So Mm -hmm. maybe we're supposed to think it was Ruby, who we'll talk about later, but I think that's a bit of a stretch. Maybe if it was her, like, corpse finger. It was pretty gnarly. It was pretty gnarly looking. And we never see the intercom system used for that kind of haunt again in the movie. Yeah, it really does feel like they were just kind of sprinkled in there. Also, they use the roller skate, like, twice at least maybe even three times for fake jump scares and i hate that (laughs) (laughs) the one thing that i do find interesting about this movie haunting wise and that i think it squanders to some extent 
is the fact that the main ghost who ultimately leads to the haunting at the climax of the film is present throughout the entirety of the film. He's either one of the first or a pretty early member of house staff that we run into. I think he's the first or the second. Yeah, like first or second, very early on. Price continues to have not insignificant interactions with him as a character over the course of the film. And of course, he is ultimately revealed to be, I guess, the big bad Mm -hmm. of the story. And I think that is a really cool idea. The idea that he was there haunting the house this entire time. Kind of, to go back to uh, Haunting of Hill House, kind of like how they will hide certain ghosts in the background and things like that. Or they'll have interacted with someone who they never knew was actually one of the ghosts of the house. Yeah, I I think that was a really neat idea. Uh, ultimately, I don't think his character pays off all that well, but... I'm glad you pointed that out because I really love that. I think that stands out to me as one of the best, like, long game reveals in a haunted house. Yeah. I love, on the second watching, we watched it a couple years back, and so this is Mm -hmm. the second time we've seen it. It was cool knowing what that reveal was going to be, because I was able to notice how the butler, you would think, might acknowledge him, but he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And there's also several moments where he is shaded in blue to make him look very pale like a ghost and if you're looking for it it's like ah yes that's a hint that he's a ghost but otherwise you could just attribute it to it being dark and shadowy back there absolutely because yeah it really wasn't until second watching that i paid closer attention to the fact that i don't think anyone but price ever really interacts with him right And so it's not clear if anyone else is aware of his presence or not, but Price is definitely the only one who actively acknowledges him. Yeah. And let's talk about why that is in the story. Ooh. So it's revealed that Sarah Winchester actually requested Dr. Price be the person to evaluate her. She knows of Dr. Price because she keeps records of every single person who was killed by one of the Winchester guns. And Dr. Price was technically dead for three minutes after being shot by one of the guns. It sounds like inexplicably he happened to survive this wound, but Sarah thinks that he has a unique ability to see and interact with the ghosts because of his position of sort of being a ghost himself though he is fully alive yeah this movie definitely makes certain references and implications that those who have close connections to death and additionally items that were associated with death have a stronger connection to the unliving because additionally he continues to carry with him the bullet that killed him and he's had it refurbished or has basically reloaded it and had it engraved what was the was it like forever and something together forever yeah or together some, forever yeah, to, yeah. to say together forever 
Um, so also this guy's just always carrying a loaded bullet around in his pocket at all times, which I guess pays off in the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I guess we'll get to how this all wraps up. So throughout the film, we learn that Sarah Winchester has, I guess you could call them seances, which is consistent with other versions of the legend, each night where she communicates with the dead through automatic writing, except it's technically blueprint drawing for the rooms. Automatic blueprinting, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) So the idea here, and I like this uh, concept. I think it's fantastic. And my organized brain loves how straightforward this all works out. Yes. (laughs) It's the original AutoCAD. There's a few people out there who are going to get this joke. I'm sure that's a joke. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry I don't I, understand. <laughs> sorry if I derailed your line of thought. No, I just okay. had to put that out there. That had to be on the record, at least at least in the draft. Well, you need to, <laughs> you got to get your dad jokes in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My cad jokes. I think that's enough <laughs> recording for today. <laughs> Sarah Winchester says that she has been receiving blueprints for rooms from the spirits of the dead. She says that she needs to construct these rooms exactly as the spirits ask, because these are the rooms that they died in. Mrs. Winchester believes that if she apologizes to the spirits and shows her remorse, that can help them find peace and allow them to move on. She says that most of the time, this is what the spirits need, but occasionally there's an angry spirit that they have to lock into the room using 13 nails for some reason. She doesn't really go into that. She says it's a divine number, but then doesn't really explain the importance of 13. So we'll just go with it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this most recent room that she is constructing is actually the Winchester Company's showroom where there had been a shooting and several deaths also as far as hauntings go over the course of the film henry is periodically possessed by a spirit who eventually gets revealed at the climax the very first time we see this is in the introduction when he gets up and goes roaming about the house with a bag over his head Uh, his mother finds him he says he is coming for us Later, something pretty similar happens. He gets up, he's roaming around with the bag on his head, wanders through the construction section of the house, and just tips himself over the ledge or off the scaffolding, and Price just happens to be walking past, steps in, manages to catch him. Looks like that would have been incredibly painful for everyone involved, uh, but they're able to get right back up. Uh... (laughs) Henry says something along the lines of, like, I see you to Price before the possession ends. A third time, he gets possessed and this time has gone and grabbed a rifle out of, I believe, the most recently constructed room and begins trying to shoot Sarah. Dr. Price realizes that the staff person he's been seeing 
around the house matches the image in the photograph that he sees of the man who shot and killed 15 people in the showroom. And then he himself was shot in the showroom and died. Sarah Winchester explains that he was angry with the Winchester company because both of his brothers, including a 14-year-old, died as Confederate soldiers because the Union soldiers had the Winchester rifle. He wore a bag over his head, which resembles the bag that Henry places over his own head when he's being possessed. So everything culminates on the day of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. This happens to be the day that Mrs. Winchester finishes the Winchester showroom for the spirit of Benjamin Block. At this point, Dr. Price decides that they should call a doctor for Henry because they are concerned that he might hurt somebody else. Yeah, this happens shortly after the incident where he attempts to shoot Sarah. Mm -hmm. When the earthquake strikes, Sarah is in the showroom. Henry and Marion are in their bedroom where the doors have been nailed shut with 13 nails. Although they do have a secret passageway protected by 13 coat hooks, I guess. Yeah, they decide that 13 coat hooks is just as good as 13 nails. This seems fairly flimsy to me, but... Whatever. The least of my concerns at this moment. (laughs) They are sealed in to try to keep the spirit from Henry so that he doesn't get hurt or hurt anybody else due to the spirit's influence. Dr. Price goes to the garden room, which he has now recognized is his garden room from his home that he used to share with his wife before she passed away. In the garden room, he's visited by the spirit of his wife, They have a conversation that seems to reenact the conflict between him and his wife, Ruby. Ruby alludes to him telling her she has a delusional disorder because she was hearing voices and implies that he should have believed her that these voices were real. Ruby's spirit attempts to shoot herself, but Price intervenes and is shot accidentally instead. Ruby then shoots herself and presumably passes away. Dr. Price kind of loses consciousness, and when he wakes up, he's surrounded by 11 spirits, including Ruby. These spirits, we don't really hear much about them, but as it pans across, we see that there is a Native American as well as an enslaved woman. And then just random... A couple people who are maybe soldiers, mm-hmm. some frontier people. <laughs> some Victorian women. <laughs> yeah. We really don't learn anything about any of them. Mm-hmm. They're just there. But now he has turned some kind of a corner and they are now there to help him. Yeah, I think that scene is just supposed to symbolize that he has opened himself up and has cleared his mind in the way that throughout the movie, Sarah has been telling him he needs to do in order to begin seeing the spirits in the house. And so at this point, he's not just seeing them in flashes and blink and you miss it type stuff. Like they're there and he can see them. And at least this group in particular seemed to have an interest in helping him. 
Price breaks his way up into the display room. Sarah summons Block to her. He possesses her. Then Price gets him out of her, tries to shoot him with one of the Winchesters. I think the Winchester that originally killed him. It doesn't work. And then they realize that the bullet that Price had kept that had originally killed him because it had previously been touched by death, or however you might say it, should be capable of killing the ghost. So he loads that into the gun, finally shoots Block, kills him, and for all intents and purposes, the movie is over at that point. Ta-da! <laughs> it's not a particularly climactic climax. So I think we would both agree that this movie is perfect and we have no, no notes, notes. <laughs> so what do you think of price in the role of the psychologist slash scientist whose role in the story is to be the skeptic this actually feels like it departs from the original archetype a little bit because that person isn't usually also the hero. Mm-hmm. So that feels kind of weird to me. What that also reminds me of is that there was this moment, I think it was in the garden room, where he switches from being this skeptic who's super pessimist and is quote-unquote haunted, also struggles with substance use and crippling debt, is all of a sudden a hero. When he had kind of been playing this, like, anti-hero before. Yeah. Is anti-hero the right word? I'm not really I don't sure. I know if you could even call him an anti-hero. Yeah. Well, uh, just, maybe a little bit, I guess. Yeah. So that was, <laughs> that was a little annoying to me because from a storytelling perspective that shift didn't really make sense and it felt kind of like lazy writing additionally because he took on that role that prevented the leading women from taking any action to solve the problem because it it appears that the script writers felt like dr price needed to step in and do everything yeah so i'm kind of annoyed by this which might be clouding my ability to see him as anything other than just a hero character that becomes whatever the script needs him to be to resolve the plot. And in fact, to be the only person who really does anything in this movie. Because God forbid Sarah or Marion get themselves out of a pickle. Exactly. And that's probably why... In a previous episode, I thought this movie was from the early 2000s, not 2018. Because that feels pretty dated already. Yeah, it's strange for a movie that's supposed to be about, or at least frames itself as being about Sarah Winchester, focusing so squarely on Dr. Price. That is literally a note that I have. It says, why is this story about Sarah Winchester actually about this fictional dude. Yep. (laughs) And I know that your protagonist doesn't have to be likable, but I also don't even find him... 
the, the ways in which it feels like they're trying to make him be one of those, like, oh, he's flawed or whatever, is just these really annoying ways. Like, he's that annoying guy at the party trying to do pickup stuff with magic tricks. And I think part of it is I'm a little annoyed, too, at what other tropes and archetypes they chose to roll into the skeptic character as well. It really does feel like a catch-all dumping ground for everything that they needed. And actually, because you mentioned that this character is not typically the main character, and given the way he's portrayed and his role, his characterization would make sense if Sarah were the main character and he were this skeptic coming in to antagonize her. And then the story is her turning him to like understand or believe or whatever. But like the the way that he just frames things just don't make him feel like a protagonist even. He frames his skepticism as like, I only believe in the things that I can see and measure and things like that. But what annoys me is in this universe, there are these things happening that he can see and measure. And like, yes, there could always be like a mental health explanation or things like that. But that doesn't mean that science doesn't apply. Like, Dr. Montague wants to take a scientific approach to the haunted house in The Haunting of Hill House, which not to say that he's an A-plus scientist or anything, but, like, movies like this always present it as if, oh, science could never accept the existence of ghosts. When it's like, no, it's just that anytime you try to study those things, they mysteriously don't hold up to observation. And it's framed like he has to give up this hard, sciencey way about himself to accept these ghosts, when really it should just be that he is taking in new information and incorporating that into his understanding of the world. And that's not unscientific. And this is all just one big rant, and I kind of (laughs) lost the plot of what we were talking about, about how he crowds out. It's okay, Winchester (laughs) lost the plot as well. Very good point. Uh, So yeah, I'm doubly annoyed that he gets the spotlight over the person the movie's named for and that he's not even a good character. Yeah, that about sums it up for me too. I also wanted to add that this movie does not pass the Bechdel test, despite the fact that the movie is named after a woman. Yeah. How much does Sarah even talk to her niece? They don't, because it's from Price's perspective. So we don't even see them having any kind of significant conversations. Correct. And additionally, additionally, there are no main characters who are people of color. Or supporting characters. Yeah. Do they even get lines? I don't think I don't so, because they're all ghosts. ghosts. And they can't even say that they were going for the historical realism thing of like, oh, well, there wouldn't have been people of color involved in this story. But it's like, there's a lot of other things that wouldn't have been involved in this story (laughs) in the real life version of it. So what do you think about the story itself? The legend and the concept of why she's haunted and how that works together with the creation of the house. Hmm. I think it's an interesting and honestly kind of novel idea in a haunted house story. Because usually it's you build the house 
and then it becomes haunted. But in this case, you have this story where it is a house being built for the purpose of being haunted. And so I think there is something kind of interesting about that, that you have a person who is haunted, and it's almost like they're building this house to cope with they themselves being haunted, to kind of compartmentalize what it is that's haunting them. In this case, literally, she is compartmentalizing these ghosts that haunt her by giving them their rooms, giving herself an opportunity to apologize to them, and then letting them either move on, or if they're not ready to move on, putting them in the timeout chair (laughs) (laughs) and letting them work on things. Yeah, uh, so it's kind of a novel approach to a haunted house story, I think. I agree. I think it's such a cool way, like you said, to kind of flip it on its head a little bit. It's like the chicken and the egg switch places. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think that's really cool. I just can't get over. I love the stories that explain why the ghosts in an existing haunted house are there. I love to hear the backstory, and then that usually connects with something that the character in the current day house is going through. And I love those connections. I think those are really interesting. And then to have a house that's full of different people with different stories, there feels like there could be so much there to work with. Hmm. And so I'm really glad that this movie really dove into those things headfirst, really added so much depth to each character's story. I'm just so glad that we have this movie to have done that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wonderful that this movie took a premise with so much potential and just really lived up to it. Mm-hmm. Just did not squander the potential nope. in any way whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> No, but Uh, I think I wanted to bring that up because I really do think that this is such a cool and unique idea, hmm. um, unless maybe it's actually inspired by something else that I don't know about yet, which in that case, I'd love to discover what that is and trace that back even further. Mm -hmm. But I can see how this is kind of its own unique influence on the haunted house story as we know it. I think one theme we see a lot in haunted houses is feelings of guilt or shame of past actions that the characters carry around with them because a lot of the time it'll be like this family is moving into a new house to escape something that happened either to the family or between members of the family and they want a fresh start but they discover that you can't run from those things you have to address them in some way Mm. and the story really lives that out in almost such a literal way yeah I'm a little disappointed. I'm disappointed because it feels like it almost touches on the concept of guilt, a certain type of guilt that people have when they realize that what they take for granted, maybe it's financial stability or maybe it's the land they live on or whatever, they realize that they get to have that as a result of somebody else's suffering I think we see this theme come up over and over and over again, especially in American haunted houses. It feels like it 
comes right up to that idea and then it doesn't do anything with it. It doesn't <laughs> say anything about it. Yeah, it it really wants to make you think that it has a lot to say on the topic of guilt and grieving. Even going so far as to have some of the characters say things that sound particularly deep, but as soon as you try to think about what it means, are revealed to really not be all that insightful. Well, for instance, like, it never turns a critical eye toward Sarah's approach to reconciling with these ghosts. Like, it never asks, like, is it really enough to build them a room and apologize, especially when the rooms of this house are being built with money from the gun that killed them. And I guess to some extent you could see it as her giving back in a way, I get, but it doesn't even discuss it on that level, let alone discussing whether or not that is the correct way to approach it. Or not necessarily correct, because I mean, I don't know that there's a correct way to grieve or to make amends, but... It just, it doesn't even approach the topic. Yes, it like tiptoes right up to it and then doesn't actually say anything. Yeah. Yeah, I was really hoping that this movie would end up having something interesting to say about grief or trauma or guilt and overcoming that. But it just, it doesn't. And it also, while we're on the topic, it also seems like there's this issue of addiction to substances that is kind of sprinkled in almost as a character trait, but then is not dealt with with a very nuanced or thoughtful approach. Yeah. At one point, she asks him if he has soldier syndrome, which I can only assume, I don't know if that was ever used as a term for PTSD or not, but it's really only brought up so that she can talk about how he has died before and that that's why she picked him to come to the house. It doesn't delve any deeper. And then she takes away his drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't really go any deeper than that into any kind of him having to actually address that. It feels like overall just a really careless approach to some really important um, and nuanced topics. Yeah. So I think for me, in some, I would just say that the legend is really interesting, and I can see how it had such a big influence on haunted house stories. I don't think the film does it justice at all. But I do want to mention one thing that I did like about the film was many scenes were shot in the actual Winchester house. It is so cool to see the house itself and the beautiful architecture and the Victorian design and decor is just fabulous to look at. Yeah, it's really it's really neat, regardless of how someone may feel about the Winchester Mystery House attraction. The fact that the house itself stays so well preserved is really incredible. You can still go and walk through this example of yeah, a Victorian aesthetic is really something. And I do think that to some extent the movie benefits from being able to be shot on location. I agree. I think it's time for a quick break. And when we come back, 
we will go through our ratings. So, Laura, on a scale of one to five, how spooky is the legend of the Winchester house? So, I think this would differ from my ratings for the movie itself, but looking more at the legend as a whole, I'm going to give it a four for spookiness because putting myself in Mrs. Winchester's shoes and being aware of all of the deaths that came as a result of my fortune and then thinking that those spirits could be in my house at this moment, that's pretty spooky. And that's a lot of spirits. That's a lot of people (laughs) angry with me, which in in and of itself is pretty spooky to me. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's a four. It doesn't doesn't quite make it to a five for me, but it's very, very good. What about you? I would give it a four as well, because I think I'm kind of torn between three and four, but then I remember that part of the legend is that the ghosts follow her through the house and things like that, and that is particularly spooky. And adding to that, her being stuck in the house after the earthquake is terrifying. (laughs) On a scale of one to five, how haunted is the legend of Winchester House. I mean, that's a lot of ghosts. That's got to be a five. (laughs) That is so many ghosts. Yep. (laughs) I have nothing to add. I think that you're right with a solid five. (laughs) And finally, on a scale of one to five, how spousy is the Winchester legend? Hmm. I don't know, like a two... Yeah. I feel like it's a two because the fact that she's married to Mr. Winchester plays a significant role. It's significant to the mechanism for which the hauntings happen, Mm. but there aren't really spousal themes to me. Yeah. Okay. I think I can get behind a two as well. The hauntings themselves aren't necessarily even tied to their marriage it's just that because she inherits all of that from him but it's really nothing to do with like the marriage itself from that point on so yeah i think that too makes sense well that about does it for our show thank you for joining us as we explored the legend of the winchester house if you're new to haunted spouse don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five spook review Reviews help us get our show out there and help listeners find the podcast. And if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podcatcher, you can suggest a rating category, like our spooky, haunted, and spousy ratings, and we will use it in an upcoming episode. If you have comments, topic suggestions, or just want to say hi, send us an email at hauntedspousepod at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at Haunted Spouses. Thanks for listening. And remember... Marion Marriott. Marion Miriam Marriott. Yes. Marion Miriam Marriott. Wait. Marion... Marion Merriman Marriott. There it is. I love it. Oh, could you... Yeah, could you imagine if she had hyphenated? I love it. 
<laughs> 10 out of 10. Oh, wait, what's her does she no have notes. a middle name? Oh, okay, Daisy. That's lame. Yeah, it should have been an it should have been Maisie. Oh my gosh. Marion, Maisie, Merriman, Marriott. I think it should have been I am way too close. Marion, Mary. Marion, Merriman. Marion, Mary, Mary. Marion, Mary, Merriman, Marriott. There we go. Ta-da.